Today, if you would, we're going to have you turn in your Bible to 1 Samuel 21. You're all seeing the meme, and I believe that a lot of you have probably seen it before. Um, it's one of my favorites. You see the expression of the little kid on his face. Um, first thing, God has a plan for your life, and there's the expression. Um, uh, Ray Comfort has a tract uh, that I don't have a picture of, but he's got a picture of a guy punching this scrawny guy holding a Bible, and it's entitled, God Loves You and Has a Wonderful Plan for Your Life. And that's just a famous Christian saying over the last 25, 30 years, maybe going back further than that, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. It is a true statement. God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life is true. It's just that it doesn't always feel, look, or seem uh, as wonderful uh, as you had imagined. And in fact, um, this meme captures um, the, uh, the feeling that it, you can have as you are going along with God and God's plan for your life or pursuing God's plan for your life or just simply pursuing God. There are wild, unexpected turns, twists, corners that you cannot prepare for other than the preparation of faith and trust. And so that is uh, what I want to talk about this morning. Um, I do want to quote another great theologian before I get started. Let me get out the actual quote um, from uh, Mr. Bilbo Baggins, the theologian of the Shire. And he says to Frodo in The Lord of the Rings, he says, it's a dangerous business going out your door, Frodo. You step onto the road, and if you don't keep your feet, there's no knowing where you might be swept off to. I've always loved that. Uh, from the first time I read the book, I've always loved the idea of setting your foot on that cobblestone or that sidewalk or that front porch, and where, where are you going to wind up? When you and I, as Christians... Uh, become Christians, we are doing what Bilbo said. We're doing what this guy on the meme looks like. We are embarking on a journey with God. Now, that sounds poetic. Sounds like we could put it in, in, the, in a magazine article. But it is true that the life that a Christian leads is a life of faith and trust following after God. And it's a plan that God has for your life. And one of the things that I want to say from the... From the uh, from the outset, and if everybody's turned to First Samuel 21, that will be good. But I want to read you what uh, the book of Proverbs says about God's plans. Proverbs 16.1 says, The plans of the heart belong to man, but the answer of the tongue is from the Lord. Proverbs 16.9 says, The heart of man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. Psalm 37 says, The steps of a good man are ordered by the Lord, as he delights in his way, he will not stumble. He will not, even though he would stumble, he's not utterly cast down. The, the steps of a good man are ordered by the Lord. They're ordered by the Lord. Psalm 31, 15 says, But I trust in you, O Lord. I say you are my God. My times are in your hand. There, there's more verses that we could go to, but the idea is that part of our trusting in God and his plan for our life is that God is in charge of this plan and in charge of this path, and He is the one taking you where you need to go. 
Yes, we have decisions and choices to make, and the song has already stolen some of my thunder, but the, those choices and those decisions are all rolled up and wrapped into the plan of God as we seek to follow Him. And they take us places, God's plan is going to take us places that we don't expect, really don't expect. And so with that in mind, I want us to go to 1 Samuel chapter 21, and we're going to read with verse 10. But before we do, I need everybody to put on your Sunday school thinking cap. I want you to close your eyes and remember the flannel graph. I can see David. He's got a brown tunic. He's got a, he's got a lighter brown belt around his waist. He's wearing sandals. He's got a slingshot, and he's about this big. And then we've got Goliath, who's about this big on the flannel graph. And he's got a big, giant, scary beard. And, uh, and he's got a big, giant, scary sword and a spear. And he's gigantic, and he's got the armor, and he looks mean, and he's terrifying. And then remember the story of David and Goliath and David with the slingshot, the five stones, and all that. Remember all that because that is the exciting beginning of David's life. Right, right before that, just so you know, in uh, 1 Samuel 16, 1, God speaks to the prophet and says, How long will you grieve over Saul since I've rejected him from being king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go. I will send you to Jesse, the Bethlehemite, for I have provided for myself a king among his sons. So go back to David and Goliath and the flannel graph and remember that Saul was rejected for his disobedience. David was selected as the king. He's a shepherd boy. Prophet goes uh, to, um, to anoint David the king and he's just a teenager and you find out in that that uh, David's anointed king, and then after that he is called in to do the leer for Saul, who has a troubling spirit from the Lord. He's been rejected. The spirit has departed. The Holy Spirit's departed from Saul, and the spirit of God is now resting on David. In fact, uh, 1 Samuel 16:13 says that the spirit of the Lord rushed upon David, which was a really interesting phrase, and he was with David from that day forward. In fact, that verse is really important because it lets you know that God has chosen David for a plan to be the king of Israel. So David is now anointed as a teenager. He meets Saul. He plays the lyre. The troubling spirit leaves him. And then after that, uh, he slays Goliath. That's the story that we all remember. And in that battle, he says the battle is the Lord's. And so the little little shepherd boy kills Goliath, and he lets Goliath know that uh, there's been bears and there's been lions that he has also killed, and I'm going to kill you the same way because God is with me. And so David's got this confidence in God and this trust in God. He's been anointed by the prophet to be the king of Israel. He then becomes good friends with the king's son, Jonathan, and he's got an eye toward the daughter of Saul, uh, which is Michael. And uh, Saul says, well, I will give you my daughter if you kill a hundred Philistines and bring me back some evidence. And uh, David goes out and kills 200 instead of 100 to prove a point. And somewhere in here, David gets his own theme song uh, among the people of Israel. And it's a theme song that Saul doesn't like. And the theme song sounds like this. 
Saul has killed his thousands, but David has killed his tens of thousands. And so this song really upsets Saul, and he's jealous, and he was hoping by sending David out to go kill Philistines to win Michael's hand in marriage, he was hoping that David would die. But David doesn't die because God is with him. And as Saul sees the favor and the hand of God on David through the killing of Goliath, through the way that he even ministered to Saul, through, uh, through the killing of the Philistines, and he sees that his daughter loves David completely, Saul becomes twisted in bitterness and hatred towards David and begins to plot to kill him and come up with, how am I going to do this? Now, he's the king. He can do it however he wants, and what he wants to do is he wants to do it himself. So he tries to throw a spear through David, and, and then he tries to set something else up. But this story of David in his life leads to Psalm, or excuse me, 1 Samuel 21, where David, because Saul is now chasing him out of the kingdom to kill him, David is on the run. And I'm not going to read the first part of 1 Samuel 21, but it's important because this priest that helps David winds up being killed by Saul for merely helping. What I want you to keep in mind through the part of David's life that we, we know most, and that's basically what I've recounted, and I, I'm relying on you to know some of the story if you don't, Go read 1 Samuel, the, uh, the first 16, 17 chapters, and get a good feel uh, for David and where he's coming from. But David, anointed king, called by God to be something specific, look at where he's at, running from Saul, verse 8. Then David said to Ahimelech, the priest, then have you not here a spear or a sword at hand? For I have brought neither my sword nor my weapons with me, because the king's business required haste. And the priest said, The sword of Goliath, the Philistine, whom you struck down in the valley of Elah, behold, it is here, wrapped in a cloth behind the ephod. If you will take it, take that, take it, for there is none but that here. And David said, There is none like that. Give it to me. So the sword that David used to cut off Goliath's own head, Goliath's sword, is there uh, in the custody of the priest. And David doesn't have any weapons. He has nothing because he's on the run. Gets the sword of Goliath. Now here's where it gets a little weird. And David rose and fled that day from Saul and went to Asius, the king of Gath, Stop. Does everybody remember what Gath is? Goliath is from Gath, the city of the Philistines. This is Goliath's hometown, and David is fleeing to the ruler uh, of that town with the sword of Goliath. Verse 11, And the servants of Asia said to him, Is not this David the king of the land? Did they not sing to one another of him in dances? Saul has struck down his thousands, and David his ten thousands? Most commentators, when you read here, they believe that what David is trying to do is hire himself out as a mercenary to the very people that he helped Saul overcome when he killed Goliath. Now, this is some time has passed, but now David is going back 
to the Philistines for some reason. We, the main reason is he's running from Saul, but some people think it's he's trying to hire himself out. He doesn't know what to do, so he goes here. Look at verse 12. When David hears these people, they recognize who he is. David took these words to heart and was much afraid of Asius, the king of Gath. So he changed his behavior before them and pretended to be insane in their hands. And he made marks on the door of the gate and let his spittle run down his beard. Let me read that sentence again. So he changed his behavior before them and pretended to be insane in their hands and made marks on the doors of the gate and let his spittle run down his beard. David is pretending to be crazy. So once he finds out that they recognize him, he's in the hometown of Goliath with the sword of Goliath. He starts acting crazy. Look at verse 14. Then Asia said to his servants, Behold, you see the man is mad. Why then have you brought him to me? Do I lack madmen that you have brought this fellow to behave as a madman in my presence? Shall this fellow come into my house? Chapter 22. David departed from there and escaped to the cave of Adullam. And when his brothers and all his father's house heard it, they went down there to him. So David escapes. He goes into the land of the Philistines with the sword of Goliath. He goes into the hometown of Goliath. Remember, he's killed 200 of these guys recently uh, in order to have uh, Michael as his wife. Um, he goes right into enemy territory and hoping that they won't recognize him. They do recognize him. David's afraid. So the way that he gets out of it is to start acting crazy. He humiliates himself in order to get away. Now, there's two different ways to look at this. One way to look at this is, this was a humiliation and such a low spot for David, which I think is true. That he has to, he's scribbling on the walls and the, the bars of the gate. I want you to picture David, the, the greatest king that Israel had, the slayer of Goliath, this mighty man of God, he is scribbling on the gate walls and he's letting spit drip down into his beard and he's acting crazy enough that the, that the king here of Gath says, I got enough madmen here, we don't need him, get him out. It's, it is a miracle, it is a miracle that he wasn't immediately killed. If the guy who killed Goliath comes into Goliath's hometown with Goliath's sword, you would think they would kill him on sight, not even ask questions. But instead, even though David goes through this humiliating experience, he's also, it's very clever, that's the other way to look at this, it is very clever that this is the way that he gets out of this crazy experience. And over all of it, both the humiliation and David's cleverness, is God has a wonderful plan for your life. He loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life, and it may take a road through the Philistine hometown of an enemy that was you killed by your own hands. It's one of those stories that causes you to stop and say, this is surely not what David had in mind when he was anointed at Bethlehem by the prophet to be 
the next king of Israel. This is not what you would think would be on the road and the plan that God has for your life. But it was. And it gets him to the cave of Adullam, which then, as you follow David's life, you see that all these people start coming to David, and he creates David's army out of this. And over the next couple chapters in Samuel, you can read how God continually delivers him out of all these difficult situations. But rather than going through all of uh, Samuel and the story of David, I wanted you to have this backdrop uh, of a story because I want us to jump back or jump forward to the book of Psalms and go specifically to Psalm 34, which has always been one of my favorite uh, psalms in the Bible. And I want you to read with me, you really, if you, have one, if you have it on your phone, I don't know if you're going to see it. You almost maybe need to get out one of these old-fashioned paper Bibles. Maybe your phone uh, Bible app will have it. But the title of the psalm is, Taste and See that the Lord is Good. But right under the title in my Bible, and every Bible I've looked at, uh, I've looked at several different translations, um, it says, Of David... When he changed his behavior before Abimelech, which is another name for the king of Gath, so that he drove him out and he went away. Psalm 34 then is directly tied to 1 Samuel 21 and that story of David tr uh, looking like a madman, scribbling on the door, spitting in his beard. Who knows what kind of show he put on. But he put on such a show that the king believed that he was crazy. And Psalm 34 is David's reflection and David's psalm of praise to God based on that event. So we know that David views his escape directly tied to God because as you read, you're going to hear that. But I want you to hear, when you hear the psalm, how different it is than what you would expect. If I had acted like a crazy person in order to get out of a circumstance, you would think I would mention that or the humili humiliation that I experienced. But listen to Psalm 34. I'm going to read uh, the entire thing and follow along with me. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. O magnify the Lord with me, and let us exalt his name together. I sought the Lord, and he answered me, and delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to him are radiant, and their faces shall never be ashamed. This poor man cried out, cried, and God and the Lord heard him, and saved him out of all his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him, and delivers them. O taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. O oh, fear the Lord, you his saints, for those who fear him have no lack. The young lions suffer want and hunger, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. Now he switches from the worship to teaching in verse 11. Come, O children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. What man is there who desires life and loves many days that he may see good? Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Turn away from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and his ears toward their cry. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil to cut off the memory of them from the earth. 
When the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. He keeps all his bones. Not one of them is broken. Affliction will slay the wicked, and those who hate the righteous will be condemned. The Lord redeems the life of his servants. None of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. That last verse really speaks to me in terms of David and the mindset he had remembering the events of 1 Samuel 21. The Lord redeems the life of his servants. None of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. Psalm 34 is not the psalm I would expect to be written in relation to what he experienced in 1 Samuel 21. But that is exactly what David is writing. And I want us, the the purpose of our lesson today, of our message is, when your world is upside down, as you're trying to follow God and you start saying, this can't be right because everything seems too crazy. And I, I know that it's such an easy thing for a preacher to do right now because the last 14 months have truly been crazy town. They have just been absolutely upside down, sideways, weird. Nothing seems anchored to the reality that I remember from 2019. Nothing seems normal. Everything is twisted up and turned upside down. Yes, I accidentally quoted Fresh Prince of Bel-Air. Everything is just all messed up. But it's not just a convenient thing to talk about. It is, it's a reality. And, and we all go through feelings and moments in our life where things are turned upside down. When you, when you lose a loved one, when jobs uh, are lost, when problems are going on financially, when there are issues maybe emotionally or mentally or whatever it is, we all go through seasons in our life that feel upside down. And we all have events happen to us that make life feel upside down. And we also have moments in our life that feel upside down because of decisions we've made, like taking the sword of Goliath into the hometown of Goliath. And then the only way to get out of that crazy situation and not die is to act like a crazy person. Though You probably don't have a direct one-to-one corollary in your life with that. But Psalm 34 is David's response to his world and following the plan of God for his life being turned upside down. As you're following God and you encounter crazy, unexpected twists and turns, Psalm 34 is a go-to for all of us to say this is the response of faith, this is the response of worship, this is the response of somebody dedicated and trusting that God is sovereignly ordering my steps, and this is what I will choose to do, like the song we sang, I choose to worship. Listen specifically to the first few verses. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. David is letting us know that it does not matter what's happening. Worship is always happening. It does not matter what is happening. Worship is always happening. We should be, as Christians, as believers, always in a position of worship. 
no matter, no matter what, we should not be seeking to find our sense of normalcy in our job or our family or our home or our hobby or our whatever it is. We should not be looking to those things to make us feel whole and normal. And the, the times that we find what we're trusting in and what makes us feel safe and secure are times when everything is shook upside down. Those are the moments where you realize, I feel most secure only when these things are happening. Or, my trust is in the Lord and it doesn't matter that these things are happening, I'm secure in Him my praise will continually be towards Him. His, uh, it's not going to leave my mouth. My soul will make its boast in the Lord, and I want the humble to hear and be glad. Magnify the Lord with me. Let us exalt His name together. The idea of Psalm 34, against the backdrop of acting crazy in the middle of a terrible situation, tells us that it doesn't matter what you're doing as you are serving God as you are walking the road that he's laid out in front of you, the thing that should always be happening is worship. Because worship, whether you feel spiritual or not, whether you're able to turn on your favorite Christian worship CD or playlist or whatever it is that you do, whether you can get the feelings of church or not, worship is the expression of thanks and trust out of our heart to Him at all times. Worship is an expression of faith. When you praise God in the middle of difficulty, when you say, I'm going to be thankful, I am going to glorify God, I'm going to thank Him that He's taking me through this, when you do that, you are expressing a deeper faith in God that has nothing to do with what you can see and it has nothing to do with what it feels like. It has to do with the fact that I trust that my times are in his hand. It has to do with the fact those scriptures we read about the heart of a man plans his way but the Lord establishes his steps. I'm not going to trust even in my own planning. I am trusting in God. If my plan falls apart, I'm going to trust that God is using my plan that fell apart to craft something more and greater and better and He is taking me where He wants to take me. The psalm goes on to say about seeking the Lord and God delivers. This poor man cried out, the Lord heard him and saved him. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers him. And then he tells us in verse 8, Taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in Him. There is an experiential nature to trusting God. What do I mean by that? That sounds really fancy. Experiential means that you know it. That you can, when you taste an apple, you taste the apple. Now you can look at the apple and recognize that it's there. And for a lot of us, our faith is, is kind of left at a picture of an apple. And, and we, we, we acknowledge that the apple's there. Um, but we don't have the taste of the apple in our mouth. 
what David is telling us to do and what he experienced through trusting God in this difficult time uh, in First Samuel 21, running from Saul in the hometown of Goliath, and he is remembering and that he tasted the goodness of the Lord as God delivered him and got him to that cave of Adullam. He tasted the goodness of the Lord. Now, living in a cave, hiding from a king trying to kill you may not sound like you're tasting the goodness of the Lord, but as you're serving God, you begin to recognize the deliverances and the rescues that God is doing in your life. And even in the difficulties, like living in a cave, uh, even in that, you realize the goodness of the Lord as He's shaping us. Church, He shapes us through the difficulties. He shapes us through the afflictions. If, if you go over and you see verse 19, David acknowledges many are the afflictions of the righteous. There, there's no such thing as trusting God and worshiping Him is your key to never having an affliction. That is not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is, is that when the afflictions come on the plan and the road that God has, as you stepped out your front door as a Christian to serve the Lord and you're on this road and you are encountering afflictions and problems, life is turned upside down, you taste and see that the Lord is good in the middle of those afflictions as you discover His goodness, even as He is shaping and molding you as a person to reflect His glory through the affliction and through the difficulty. So the, the afflictions, they, they squeeze out and they press on us and it's uncomfortable and we don't like it. Sometimes it's incredibly painful physically, mentally, emotionally, and God is lovingly, as our Father, with us through it. He's got His arm around us, walking us through the fire. Fear not, though you walk through the fire, I am with you. And through the flame, you'll not be burned. Meaning, it's not that you're not going to feel the fire. It means you're not going to suffer permanent, lasting death and damage. You are going to come through every trial, every affliction, Many are the afflictions of the righteous. The Lord delivers him out of them all. Now listen, there's missionaries who experienced afflictions all the way up into death. Does that mean God did not deliver them? No. When you die, you are in the presence of Jesus. If you die in the service of Christ, if you die in His service as you are working for Him and living for Him, no matter how it happens... You are doing so to the glory of God. And what, what happens next? You are in the very presence of Jesus. I want, now, some people don't like this, but I want, I want you to think with me. What do we have to lose in serving God? Nothing. We gain everything in serving God. To live as Christ and to die is gain. The message of, of serving Jesus is not a message of everything is going to be exactly the perfect way you mapped it out and you wanted it to be. The message of serving Jesus is, is God is going to take me through this winding, looping roller coaster of an amazing, crazy, terrifying life where I get to glorify Him and reflect His glory and through the afflictions through the difficulties, through the victories and triumphs, God is going to be with me, molding me, shaping me, teaching me, growing me, and through that whole process, 
shining his light, his light, through my life, not through me, well, through me, but not because of me, because of him, and people are going to see the goodness of God in the land of the living, because we believe we will see the goodness of God in the land of the living. God's goodness is in all the things he takes us through. It's in all the victories, and his goodness is even in the difficulties, because he's keeping us, he's sustaining us. When we know that there's greater purpose in what God's doing, it really eases the mind to trust him that way, to know that whether I live or whether I die, I do it as unto the Lord, and that he's taking me where he wants me to go. Taste and see that the Lord is good. There is an experiential knowledge. There is Christianity is not just a stoic intellectual knowledge. It is the exercise of the mind in biblical truth, but it is also the tasting of that apple. And you can taste the sweetness and the goodness of God in the middle of trials and afflictions and in the middle of triumphs. It's, it's harder sometimes to taste the goodness of God in the triumphs. I don't know if you've noticed, but my thanksgiving uh, towards God is most prominent the moment I come out of a difficulty and the moment that I start living normal life again, that thanksgiving starts to wane. It starts to dissipate. That is the natural inclination of sinful man, the hymn, uh, my heart is prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Give me grace, I want, Lord, I need you to keep me centered on you. And that is the life of a Christian. Psalm 34 tells me a lot of things. It tells me to worship Him at all times. It tells me to experience Him uh, and taste that He is good. It tells me to fear Him. And it tells me that the Lord is near to the brokenhearted. He saves the crushed in spirit. That there are many afflictions, but He's right there. He's near. He is right there in the moment with us and delivers us out of them all. He either delivers us through wonderful deliverances in this life or the ultimate deliverance, which is taking us to heaven. God is always good. Always good. I don't have this in my notes, but I want to I end with Romans chapter 8. I can find the verse that I want. It's always dangerous to do this. Here we go. Romans 8.31. Because what I'm saying is, Psalm 34 is teaching us that worship is the expression of trust that should always be in my mouth. I will continually praise the Lord no matter what's going on. The song we sang, I choose to worship you no matter what. That's the essence of what that song is. But I want you to hear how Paul sums up what is considered by some to be the greatest chapter in the Bible, Romans 8. In verse 31, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, 
who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Listen to this. This is how his praise is continually in my mouth. Because who can separate me from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation? No. Or distress? No. Or persecution? No. Or famine? Or nakedness? Or danger? Or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Listen to the eternal perspective of this thinking. He is saying that Jesus is going to take care of everything ultimately and nothing can separate us from the love of God and we are more than conquerors through Jesus Christ. What that means is it doesn't matter if you're naked or killed or in famine. It doesn't matter if you're without power uh, because of ice storms. It doesn't matter if your house catches on fire. It doesn't, it doesn't matter what happens. God is with us, and in these things, we are more than conquerors. Through Him who loved us. The, the confidence that David had in God caused him to say, His praise will always be in my mouth. It doesn't matter what's going on in this crazy plan God has for my life. I will always be praising Him. And my confidence in who Jesus is and what He's done tells me as a Christian, nothing is separating me from the love of Christ. Nothing. Not demons, not angels, not powers, not things now, not things to come. Nothing is going to separate me. So my confidence is in Him. You can write this from a prison cell and be rejoicing. You can rejoice under terrible dictators and regimes that say you're not allowed to preach the gospel. You can rejoice and say in the middle of terrible betrayals with family and friends, amongst horrible sickness and diseases, amongst anything you experience, that if God is for me, who can be against me? I am with Christ, therefore His praise will always be in my mouth. And it does not matter where I find myself. It doesn't matter what I have going on. I will praise the Lord. And that is what I want to get across. In the middle of the weirdness of our life, in the upside-down, topsy-turvy, find an anchor. Find a solid, steady ground to stand on. And you're, going to not, you're not going to find that anywhere outside of the Scriptures and what they teach. What they teach is, my times are in His hands. Therefore, His praise will always be in my mouth. That is my encouragement to everybody this morning. And if you find yourself struggling... And these words sound like they're fairy tale words, and I know how that happens. It just sounds like a preacher getting excited about the Bible, but real life is real life. Well, I understand. So what I'm saying is real life is really in God's hands. And if you don't see it that way today, you can go to Him and say, Lord, I want to see things from your perspective 
and begin to worship Him. Begin to cry out to Him. Go through Psalm 34. Go through Psalm 37. Go through Psalm 27. Go through Psalm 91. Go through and look. The book of Psalms is a great place for you to go to see someone like David in real life situations and how he responded to them. Begin to ask God to show you so that you can taste and see that He is good. Let's pray. Father, we thank You today for Your goodness. We thank You, Lord, that we can taste and see. You, you called us to taste and see that the Lord is good. We know that that happens through the Holy Spirit as we, in faith, reach out to You. God, I, I know that the ultimate and beginning of the tasting and seeing in our journey with You is coming to Christ in a saving faith. So Lord, for anybody out there that doesn't know You, God, I pray that they would see You today. You are the crucified and risen Savior. You died for our sins. You became a man. Lived a perfect life and took my punishment and their punishment. You absorbed the wrath of God on behalf of us sinners. And because of your great love with which you loved us, even when we were dead in our sins, you made us alive together. By grace we are saved. Lord, I pray that that grace would touch hearts this morning that are listening, or wherever or however they're listening to this and that they would come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. God, open eyes. Call on the name of the Lord. The Bible says whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Call on His name this morning. Pledge allegiance to Him. Lord, for every Christian that's struggling, every Christian that feels like real life has swallowed them up and that they are, they're upside down, God, show them the power that is in Psalm 34. And the power that comes from simply trusting you, knowing, Lord, that you have us in your hand. Our times are in your hand. So our praise, will, your praise will continually be in our mouth. Lord, I pray that you would help us all to know that and see that and cherish that truth all the days of our life. Lord, we thank you for that. We give you glory for it. It's in the precious name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Thanks, everybody. We will see you next week.